You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. I'm Calvin, and you're listening to Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. This show is an experiment in civility, gathering people who disagree to sit down face-to-face and having them discuss their disagreements. Do we ever arrive at consensus? Sometimes. What's most important is we've got the conversation started. Well, hey, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. I am your host, Calvin Moore. And per usual, I am here with my co-hosts, Ken Straith and Steve Phelps. What's going on, guys? Enjoying another election season. Start spreading the news. Good times. We really dodged a bullet. That's we, yeah. You know, I, I was just I, we were just saying a few I minutes ago. I don't see ago. what you guys are so excited about. I mean, I, I'm very upset that my candidate did not win. The election. You Boy, know, I'm just, I, I am I just was... upset uh, that uh, my candidate, uh, Jorgensen, Joe Jorgensen, yeah. lost because By all those pe- because all those people voted for Trump when they, they wasted their vote yeah. on the Joe third Jorgensen party when they single. should have voted for uh, Jorgensen. <laughs> she didn't take a single state. I'd I was be pissed very off. upset about that. And then my second pick, Mickey Mouse, was definitely no. No, not never, even a blip on the radar. Never even in it. <laughs> no, no. Not even in it. But, but uh, many, believe it or not. One, one Delaware. <laughs> one Delaware. They don't even have an airport. <laughs> they, bar- they shouldn't even get an electoral vote. So um, we are, obviously, we're, we're post-election at this time that we're recording. And we do have a, it has been called, has who been the called. winner of the election is. Uh, Joe Biden uh, has been uh, elected, is projected the winner of the 2020 election, uh, slated to become president of the United States in 2021. Uh, at the time of this recording, Donald Trump has not conceded. Uh, he has released a lengthy statement from the uh, from the alley. <laughs> not this, I'm, I'm mixing I'm mixing up stories, um, but uh, he has released a, a lengthy statement that uh, they will be challenging some of these. I don't see that that will go anywhere, uh, but that is his right to do. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's a couple of recounts that are automatic. Uh, Rudy Giuliani is still in an alley between a porn shop and a crematorium, which uh, I, <laughs> I'm i not even kidding. Uh, Are you I, mixing up SNL and no, actual no, reality so, again? No, so here's the deal. So if you have not heard this story, uh, there was— Let, let uh, me—fill in the details in a second. Let me read ahead. to you, let me read to you the, the lead from a, the story this morning in the Philadelphia Inquirer. It's— it's among the best openings to a news story I've ever read. What began five years ago with the made-for-TV announcement of Donald Trump's presidential ambitions from the escalator of his ritzy Manhattan high-rise ended, Satur- ended Saturday with his elderly lawyer shouting conspiracy theories into the sky and vowing lawsuits in a northeast Philadelphia parking lot near a sex shop and a crematorium. Yes. So, so here's the deal. Um, <laughs> you wait your whole life for an opportunity. To help. You know, in the last four years, before, probably a little bit before that, but the last four years, um, when it comes to hey, this is what I think, this is what I believe. We can't trust the mainstream media. I have had to look at what's the dot com that someone is saying <clears throat> is presenting to me to present their case. Uh, and more often than not, it was not a mainstream media source. It was something that could easily be dismissed. I'm like, why is this story on this website? But I, I saw this picture of Rudy Giuliani outside of a garage. America's with a bunch, mayor. With, with, yeah, Amer- yeah. with a bunch of uh, Trump-Pence signs uh, giving a press conference. And I had not had my coffee yet. 
And I had not really gotten into the news cycle yet, so I saw this picture and I went, man, that is a really, really good deep fake. Man, whoever has the – someone's got a, a great skill set with um, – Oh, uh, what's uh, what's Photoshop? Or like, Photoshop, okay. yeah, Photoshop. Man, they really photoshopped him into this. And then I dug deeper, and by dug deeper, I meant went to any reputable website yeah. and found out. Oh no, this really happened. So as the story goes, um, they wanted to uh, set up a press conference at the Four Seasons Hotel, mm-hmm. which uh, of which there are a number of. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said no. Or it couldn't happen there. But they'd announced um, it, right? They'd announced it. Yeah. And so then they uh, threw an audible and uh, ran an audible and uh, called an audible, sorry. And uh, they had it at the Four Seasons Landscaping Company. Yeah. Oh. And, uh, I've been to a Four Seasons <laughs> Landscaping Company. I, am, I, I, bought a, I, uh, I bought a, um, I had a lawnmower fixed at one before. Great service. This okay. Is, I'd go to them again. Didn't this realize not, it was a this train. This is not my joke. I totally took this from the internet, but... Uh, it seems like somebody at the Four Seasons Landscaping Hotel, or not hotel, company. but uh, company said. And that's how the problem started. Uh, yeah, this is, no, no, we're the Four Seasons Landscape. You want to do what? <laughs> how much? You pay me how much? <laughs> yeah, come on out. Yeah. Come, on, come on out. And so what ended up happening was uh, America's mayor, uh, so to speak, sure, uh, Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani, ended up giving this speech, rambling, kind of conspiracy theory-laden yeah. speech outside of a landscape, uh, the Four Seasons Landscaping Company, in between a porn shop and a crematorium. So terrible joke. Don't know if Rudy Giuliani was coming or going. I <laughs> um. <laughs> uh, see what I just did there. Oh, that's terrible. I'm a horrible human being. But either mm. way, um, but you can't make. I feel like we're living in idiocracy. In the, a way, I you know I had people all day tell me that the uh, the, the recounts are ongoing. The legal maneuvers are only starting tomorrow. And nobody responded well when I reminded them that the effort is being headed up by a guy who got outmaneuvered by Borat. Mm. True story. True story. So so here we are. We we now have election results. And we wanted to kind of get a little bit granular uh, with you know, kind of where do we go from here? It's kind of what we're going to be talking about in this episode. And uh, full disclosure, I was on the podcast, the Saving uh, Elephants podcast, with one of our guests, uh, who is Josh Lewis. Well, I'll inter- I mean, I'll let him give his bio here in a few moments. <laughs> but I was on his show on election night, asking some of the same questions that we will be asking tonight. At that time, we didn't have a winner. None of us thought we would have a winner. At that time, I believe that the cal- – not the calendar, the, the electoral map looked a lot more red than it does now. Uh, I even said during the podcast, the, the redder this map gets, the more I drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, I Full disclosure, also said I am fully prepared for uh, Trump to win again as a black person in America. We'll get into that as well. Um, but Biden did pull it out. So Joe Biden's about to become the 40 40- – Sixth president of the United States. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Kamala Harris is uh, about to become the first female vice president of the United States, first uh, <clears throat> biracial uh, vice president of the United States, first uh, black uh, Asian uh, vice president of the United States. A lot of things. She, she, she checks a lot of, she checks a lot of uh, uh, boxes. And she's married to a Jewish man, so uh, really. Uh, she checks all the boxes, honestly. But 
either way, we kind of wanted to ask some of the same questions that we asked on the <laughs> Saving Elephants podcast. Thank you, Josh, for really coming up with a lot of what we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, we don't have the same guests that were on your show, but either way, I thought it was a robust conversation, and maybe this was kind of a nice um, uh, capstone. And any the, week, we don't have to take the time to come up with our own stuff. Yeah, right. We can fantastic. steal somebody else's, we yeah, absolutely. absolutely. We Stealing. should start doing this every week, steal mm-hmm. a different podcast question. Absolutely. Even yeah. that has nothing to do with what we're and, talking about. And their staff. And their staff. Yeah, huh? next, yeah. next week, we're going to be doing... Uh, uh, so, was uh, f- it God, God Save the Podcast? Yeah. Or yeah, Pod Save America. Uh-huh. Pod Save and, America. And, ne- and the week after, we'll be talking about oncology. <laughs> Absolutely. And ghost stories after that. We are so. announcing John Favreau will be <laughs> yes. on the show. This is uh, Leading Questions with Calvin Moore lore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Stephen Menke. Right. Do you ever wonder what that noise is at night when you're all alone? <laughs> so um, that being said, I've already mentioned one of our guests, Josh Lewis, uh, is back with us. Josh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Obviously, I've already name-dropped your, your podcast, but tell us about uh, who you are and uh, your background. Calvin, it's good to be back, and so happy to have a conversation with you when we know a little bit more about the results of an election i think you and my other guest on that uh, episode you mentioned i think everybody brought their a game as a wonderful discussion but it's kind of hard to talk about the results of an election when it's up in the air uh but yes as you mentioned josh lewis i host the saving elephants podcast it is which a is podcast. a podcast about conservation, conservation of african of animals yes. among other things okay yes right. in addition to that i also <laughs> am interested in saving the gop saving okay. the gop see we did it there I, flipped it around uh, mm-hmm. to be a uh, Trumpy nationalist populist uh, dissent it appears to be heading toward and trying to call it back to a more Burkean conservative uh, tradition. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show again. And uh, obviously no stranger to the show. Friend, actually, both of you are friend of the show at this point. Uh, but obviously longtime friend of the show, uh, Saeed Khan, Professor Saeed Khan from Wayne State University. Uh, Saeed, tell us a little about your background. Sure. Thanks for having me back. It's great to be back with Josh as well. Uh, I'm a senior lecturer in Near Eastern Asian Studies and Global Studies and the Director of Global Studies at Wayne State, uh, also uh, an adjunct at uh, Rochester University, teaching a course on Christian-Muslim uh, dialogue, uh, host my own podcast called 1400 OMG, Making Sense of What the Hell Happened in Muslim History, and most recently uh, co-wrote a book called What's Going On Here, U.S. Experiences of Islamophobia Between Obama and Trump. And may I just add that since you were talking about Rudy Giuliani uh, operating in a parking lot of a landscaping uh, store. Allegedly. uh, Allegedly. (laughs) Next to an adult store, next to a crematorium. It just occurred to me that he was trying to illustrate Maslow's hierarchy of needs because they were all present in one area. (laughs) Was there a restaurant in that square too? I think there was a vending machine. All right, all right. Vending, there was a vending machine. It counts. <laughs> well, I'm, you know what, Saeed? You have added quite a bit to your uh, to your resumes. I, a I, book I now. We, you're going to have to bring your book next time we I see you. I want a signed copy We want three book. copies. Yeah, for absolutely. Sure. Real, real paper. Real paper. Not my, that e-stuff. My one swear word's coming up because we, we're not buying that shit at all. <laughs> But we expect three signed copies. <laughs> how, about, how about a, a watermarked PDF? That's, that is no, 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 not at this point. Paper. Come on, what man. That? That's some bull crap. <laughs> I got to say crap now. Dang it. I, uh, I, used, my one, I used my one word. First seven minutes of the show. <laughs> so um, so let's, let's, uh, let's dive right in. Uh, but thank you both for being here uh, tonight. My, uh, for those of you still listening, by the way, not <laughs> still listening. <laughs> 
for whoever, whoever's still left out there. I, I, can't, I can't get past the intro. <laughs> Ten so minutes on, and out. On the second half of the show, we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, and my wife will be joining us uh, on, on that uh, half of the show as well. So um, when we were on your show, Josh, I think the first question we kind of led mm-hmm. off with was, what would four more years of, a, of Trump mean for the Republican Party? Now that's not something that we really need to talk about. If you want to uh, to hear what the answer was at that time, go and listen to the Saving Elephants podcast uh, episode about the election. But I think the the second question that we asked still stands, uh, and what and that question is what would the GOP look like if Trump loses? And since you were someone who was hoping to save the GOP, uh, Josh, I think that uh, I'd like to throw that question to you first. And, and the answer may still be the I mean, you you let us answer. Uh, on your show, but I'd love to know what your perspective is on that uh, as well, obviously. Well, and I think in part that answer depends on what we just saw, which was the result of the election. And I agree Trump lost the election, but I don't think Trump or Trumpism is going away anytime soon. It it was not a 1964 landslide election, and this doesn't appear to be, at least probably from the Republican perspective, a complete repudiation of Donald Trump. And it remains to be seen whether or not he's going to have some staying power. Now, it is possible, uh, say, four years from now, most of Americans, most Republicans are going to be thinking over the last four years as, wow, that was exhausting. Do we really want to cram an entire decade's worth of news into each individual year? And, and we may slowly kind of drain away from the Trumpiness of the party. But as, as we had talked on on the show, I had kind of identified four potential paths. Yes. And I won't go through all of them, but I honestly, at this point, I think the, uh, I, I'm leaning toward it's most likely still Trump's party. He's still probably the ring bearer. I don't think he's going away. I think unlike most presidents, he's probably going to be as vocal as possible. Whether or not that means we get to hear for the next four years, hey, I really won this thing. It was taken from me. Or if he just is sort of a thorn in the flesh of elected Republican officials constantly calling them to some sense of loyalty, I'm not sure. So you don't, you, you don't think he, uh, <laughs> You don't think he's like that guy who graduated high school who keeps showing back up at high school? Like, dude, come on, man. You graduated. Why, threw, why are you here still? I threw four touchdowns. <laughs> homecoming, 1978. Um, uh, Josh, let me, uh, let me ask this question of you. Saeed, feel, feel free to, 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 to chime in. What do you see? You say that you still see the, the, the GOP as Trump's party, and he's going to have uh, significant staying power. In the next, let's say in the next six months to a year, there is a fairly strong possibility that he will be either or both uh, indicted by New York State and conclusively shown to have raped a woman in Bergdorf Goodman uh, department store in the 1990s. If one or both of those things happen, uh, does the GOP stick with him? Uh, A... Yeah, once those things are are on the table? You know, I, I only have to go off of the repeated history of the last four years, and the reality is it seems like no matter what Trump does, no matter what he says, no matter what alleged crimes are in his background, in some sort of weird opposite universe, it's almost like it only endears him further to the mm-hmm. GOP. And, and, and I'm not saying that that would necessarily continue to happen, particularly if he's out of power, but I, I would certainly not assume that if he was indicted or if there were charges brought against him that that would harm his image in the GOP in fact in, in some I mean good grief 
he was impeached, and that seemed to just rally the troops around him even further and, and just divide this nation further. It kind of depends on how that shakes out, right? It, 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 it's not a simple matter of if a preponderance of evidence is brought forth that the average person can look at this. Look, I'm, I'm in part ashamed to be a Republican tonight, knowing that a, a, uh, over the weekend I got an invite from my local Republican Party and invited me out to a park where they could rally to protect the vote, that this is an election we're trying to steal from the president. And it's just mind-bending to me that so many Republicans are willing to repeat that lie. Uh, it's a painful thing to lose an election, and there might be fraud, and, and if so, we should prosecute that. We should get to the bottom of it, but just to allege that this thing's stolen. Uh, I mean, I, I look at something like that, and I think it's hard for me to see in the future some scenario where Donald Trump is indicted, and that means the GOP abandons it. Josh, 70 million people uh, voted for Donald Trump. Um, I, I know you, there's no scientific way to determine it, but I mean— Based on, on the people that you know and the circles that you are in and the people you talk to, what percentage are uh, Trumpian and what percentage are uh, I, I, I want small government, I want states' rights, I want you know to uh, repeal and, and replace uh, the ACA, and that it's more ideological and not about the man? Wait, hold on. Josh, I, I want you to be kind of spinning your wheels on that question for just okay. a moment. Because I still want Saeed, and Saeed hasn't gotten a word in on that first question. So I think, I think that's the next second-order question that we ask. But I'd like to know, Saeed, what are your thoughts as someone who's on the other side of the aisle? Um, where do, we still have to deal with the GOP. Where do you think, uh, you know, what do you think happens uh, in, in the face of a Trump loss to the GOP? Well, I think that Steve's uh, invocation of the 70 million is, is, is something we have to take very seriously. I mean... Biden uh, now has the record for uh, attaining the most votes in American history for any presidential candidate, and right behind him is Donald Trump. Uh, that is uh, considerable. Uh, I'd also like to talk about uh, what Josh said regarding impeachment. And once upon a time in America, uh, a woman sitting on a guy's lap uh, on a boat named Monkey Business uh, would have disqualified that person, not the woman, the the, the other person. Weird coincidence, lap, it did. Uh, for 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 a run for the presidency, the uh, the allegation and somewhat uh, corroboration of plagiarism did in this very presidential elect uh, not too long ago uh, in in the nineteen thir- uh, thirty years ago with Joe Biden uh pinching a, a speech a la melania trump from neil kinnick a, a british uh, a politician that was seen as egregious i would argue that the impeachment of bill clinton has taken the luster off and the specter off impeachment uh being a, then a disqualifier uh, i think that decision was made over 20 years ago in the american public eye right because he got reelected. Really matter. Yeah, he got yeah, re-elected. He got re-elected. Yeah. Well, no, and, he, was, he was re-elected before then. Yeah. Oh, okay. But sorry, I think, sorry, but, but, but at that time too, though, uh, Bill Clinton's response to the impeachment was uh, humility to a point, and in a way that we had not seen Bill Clinton prior to the impeachment. Okay. Um, there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of uh, credit that Bill Clinton is given for working with the GOP more after that. But part of it may have been a realization that he'd let a bunch of people down, too. And I don't know exactly where the motivation came in there. At that point, I was was more on the right. I think all of us were more on the right at that point. I, at least as it was fed to me, uh, which I, of course, bought hook, line, and sinker because I was deep in drinking deep from the well more of 
like your evangelical thinking, like your your James Dobsons and, and whatnot. Hey, hey, if, if you just apologize, if you just admit what you did, we'll forgive you. We're Christians. That's what we do. And then he admitted, like, well, he's terrible. And so I was fed this idea that even though he apologized, we got him to do exactly what he wanted him to do, speaking mostly at I'm, – I'm speaking, and I'm, I, I get a chance to do this on my own show now. Uh, on Josh's show, I talked about evangelicalism uh, without – saying I, I kind of blend evangelicalism and conservatism politically. Uh, I, I almost use them synonymously because uh, that's what I grew up in. I didn't get to say that on your show, so that's what I'm doing now. Um, but uh, I, I feel like, hey, apologize, just apologize, we'll forgive you. That's our bag. And then when he did, they're like, he's not contrite. So <laughs> He didn't be, mean it. Being, yeah, being on the conservative side of things at that point, I believed fully – I don't know where I feel now because it's 20 years removed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt like Bill Clinton is not contrite because I was supposed to believe that he was not contrite. Mm. He did it. He at least admit he admitted it because he was caught. Yeah, and there's still a little bit of that with me. Even I mean, I okay. don't. Uh, I mean, and I think only because Bill Clinton was a particular kind of person for a very long time. This wasn't the first time. Uh, you know, probably close to the last time, but I'm guess, but it was not the first time. And so, <clears throat> how do you change your stripes over, you know, 25 years of smoke means there probably was a little bit of fire there. Um, gotcha. Th- he just got caught this time, and red-handed, because there was so much other, there was so much else in the late 80s and early 90s about we've got this, we've got that, which he just finally got caught. And I think that was that was a little bit of a difference, too. Okay. Um, I think for the most part, though, liberals were like, well, he's a damn good president. <laughs> we're going to forgive that because right. he's good at what he Which does. Which then feeds into what, what Saeed was saying. is like, hey, we kind of got over that 20 yeah. years ago because, you know, he was impeached. We still supported him. Democrat. Well, I wasn't a we at that point. Now I am. But he was still supported by Democrats. And now we're seeing the shoe is on the other foot 20 years later. Um but I would still say, having been conservative at that point and being more liberal now, I would absolutely say there was there was an absolute understanding, not absolute, sorry. There was a huge understanding in my perspective of what it means to be moral. There was a call for moral leadership. Both people failed that standard. And Republicans called absolutely foul on it. I would not say that Democrats were the party of morality at that point. They still don't claim to be the party of morality. Now, they have more moral high ground than they did before, but they still don't claim that other than don't lock children in cages, right? So um, let's, 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 let's take this idea of morality and, and bring it forward through the arc of uh, presidency since Clinton. Yeah. You're right. I think Clinton demonstrated a kind of a, uh, a moral bankruptcy, which even uh, many Democrats uh, acknowledged but were willing to overlook. The Republicans had an opportunity, and Josh, please correct me on this. I know that you, you know far more than I do about this, but it seems to me that the Republicans had an opportunity uh, with George W. Bush to reclaim uh, definitively the moral high ground. The moral bankruptcy that happened there didn't happen in the bedroom. It happened in the situation room with the prosecution of the wars and the kind of deception and the betrayal that it caused when it came to Iraq and Afghanistan, more so Iraq than Afghanistan post 9-11. The whole thing, I mean, I just watched uh, the movie W again, uh, and I I think it really resonated and triggered me uh, for that reason. Obama, interestingly enough, 
reclaimed the moral high ground, not just for the Democratic Party, but I would argue for the Republican Party as well. He really served as a kind of uniting force. There were just other centrifugal forces that wouldn't allow people to see a black American man as the new standard bearer for American morality and for that of the government. And that then sets up the ability for either the wife of a morally bankrupt a former president running against a person who is sui generis, morally bankrupt Trump. And that's where we see ourselves now four years after that individual moving forward as to circuit breakers are off, people will go ahead and accept. I mean, I'll give you an example from the Muslim American community. 65% of Muslim Americans voted for Biden. 35% voted for Trump, uh, which despite the fact that he began his campaign coming down the escalator saying total and complete ban on Muslims uh, entering the United States, Islam hates us, uh, and any number of other ploys of weaponizing the community. It didn't matter for about a third of the community as long as their taxes were lower, their 401ks were higher, and it seemed as though he was going to do something to put a curb on LGBTQ. So arguably the moral bankruptcy that is perceived about Trump and maybe broad, more broadly the Republican Party for them uh, took a backseat to what arguably could be their own moral depravity of being that self-centered when it came to how they looked at the election. Josh, do you think, I mean, we talked right there about the moral depravity uh, on one side. I mean, does that exist, though, on the other side, too, from your point of view? From where I stand, there's not a party that represents morality mm. these days. Uh, it's it. Look, I, I think in the 90s, I am myself an evangelical. I think in the 90s, and, and Calvin, I grew up in that same uh, bubble where what Bill Clinton did was reprehensible, was unforgivable. I think evangelicals over overshot the morality, uh, the how much does one's character count in public office. Personally, I think it counts a lot. I think character is destiny. I think it is very important. I don't think it's all important necessarily, and I don't think it necessarily explained everything that was actually going on underneath the surface as to why conservative evangelicals did not like Bill Clinton. Yeah, I think from the liberal point of view, <clears throat> we remember being told uh, – years ago that uh, Bill Clinton, because of his moral depravity, was unfit for office. And I think what really grinded the gears of liberals is being told later on, well, we didn't elect a, uh, a, a pastor in chief. We elected a, you know, someone to command the armed forces and to you know, run the executive branch of the United States. And I think that's what really drove a lot of liberals crazy under the Trump administration, because <clears throat> it was like the goalposts were moved on what are the qualities of a president, because we, when we had Barack Obama, it was like, hey, we, we got a great guy. He's a great family man. He's a great dad. And he's, a, he's you know, uh, to those who in the evangelical community, he was someone who professed a, a faith. And so then that wasn't good enough because he was too socialist for whatever right. reason. And then Trump comes along. It's like, all right, so we have the rules now. And it's like, no, no, we don't. We have different rules. So I know from a liberal point of view, it kind of really bound us up a little bit because it was like, well, we don't know what the rules are anymore for the moral high ground. So you're probably right. We should probably stop trying to fight for whatever that moral high ground is because everyone's going to have a different point of view on that. I, I do I do want to move on here. So on Josh, on your show, 
Uh, one of the questions that you asked was, what are the changes we could expect from the Democratic Party if, if Biden loses? And I do owe a lot to Kent and Steve on the answer that I gave on your show, uh, where I said, hey, you can't get more centrist, homie, uh, or, or folksy than Joe Biden, right? So a Democratic Party uh, that, that wins popularly but doesn't <laughs> win electorally, uh, that's going in the opposite direction towards radicalism. We had a, a robust conversation about that. Again, go back, listen to that show if you have a chance. Um, but uh, if he lost, my statement was you could expect us to move toward, more towards a party that looks like AOC. Hey, look, uh, Republicans are willing to play a certain way. Democrats keep trying to, quote, unquote, take the moral high ground. We're not going to play that way. But we keep losing all these damn elections. So maybe we need to get a little more radical, get a little more, quote, unquote, dirty, and, and play the game the way that it is being played, not necessarily the way it's meant to be played, but the way that it is being played is how you win the game. Um, but Biden won. So uh, now that's not the conversation that we're having. So I want to drop the next question to Kent here in regards to where we go from here. I guess the, the, the question is Joe Biden is going to end up having a nice win. Uh, it's going to be, uh, it looks like, 306 electoral votes and uh, about five points in in the popular vote the thing is because of what looks like a medium size medium size to large polling miss um a lot of people went into the election expecting a nine to ten point popular vote win and 380 electoral votes so how do you see the closer nature of the victory um affecting the direction of the democratic party uh, and directing the, the the governance of the new administration. And either one of you can take this. And and, and I'm kind of, and I feel like I'm somewhat outside of my game trying to guess how this would affect the Democratic Party. I mean, uh, Calvin, I I feel like I I maybe had a stronger sense as Biden won what that would you know all hell was going to break loose. Um, there's a lot of unknowns in a Biden administration. You know, we still don't know, as we said today, it looks likely the GOP will retain control of the Senate. That's unknown. It might not happen. We'll, we'll see, because now we've got Georgia in a runoff, right? We didn't know at that point. Georgia in two runoffs. Georgia in two, two. two runoffs. The, right? two so runoffs. That, that'll determine right. things. Right? The, the ad campaigns in Georgia. I mean, everyone's going like this yeah. <laughs> down to Georgia because, you know, the it's, money's going to be pouring in there. Right, absolutely. And it's there going is to be a national election. Technically, officially, there is an uncalled seat in Alaska. Where uh, Dan Sullivan is uh, is up on Dr. Al Gross in Alaska, which which looks like it looks like uh, Dan Sullivan's going to be reelected. But I don't know who's the Republican, who's Democrat. Uh, Al Gross is an independent who okay. would caucus with the Democrats, okay. and Dan Sullivan is the incumbent Republican senator. Okay. Right. It looks like he's going to win. There's no real reason to assume that he won't, but there's a lot of mail ballot. Uh, outstanding and mail ballot mail ballot favors uh, the Democrat. Okay. So uh, Alaska, for reasons that are probably obvious and some that aren't, uh, counts incredibly slowly, and uh, we're just going to have to see on that one. And then so we've got uh, David Perdue and John Ossoff running in a uh, in one runoff, and uh, uh, Pastor uh, Raphael Warnock and Kelly uh, incumbent Kelly Loeffler uh, running in the other. So that's the uh, so if if both Democrats won in Georgia, the if both Democrats won in Georgia and Al Gross won, 
it would be 51 Democrats, 49 Republicans. Assuming Al Gross were to lose, if both Democrats won, it would be 50-50, and uh, Vice President Harris would break any ties. And if uh, so, the worst the Democrats can do is 48. The best they can do is 51. Okay. Just Um, right now, Sullivan has doubled up. You always impress me by knowing all the people that no one knows the names of. Okay. (laughs) It's always fascinating. I'm like, man, this guy's a savant over here. Sullivan is up 31 points, by the way, right now. Yeah, but that's been true for like three days. It hasn't moved in forever. So, yeah, so what's what's the difference, though, between uh, a close win? What does it mean for Biden presidency? presidency that we, we thought it was going to be a repudiation. I mean, Hillary Clinton hopped on Twitter and said it is a repudiation. Any win is a repudiation of Trump and Trumpism and, and, and all that. But uh, when you expected a landslide, and it wasn't a landslide, and you have a now president-elect who says he's going to govern for all Americans, which is a good thing. I don't see red states. I don't see blue states. I see you know the United States. But he's also said, I'm going to kind of rule more from the center do you think Biden expected to rule a little bit left of center, but now because it's not as close as he thought, he's going to have to rule? He's going to have to maybe rule. Not as not as rule. Rule. I I rule is a bad word, right? You know, I've, I've, we've had a ruler for the last four years. Yeah. I'm sorry. Govern, <laughs> Govern is Govern, a good word. Govern from uh, Govern from the middle, uh, closer to the middle than even he was expecting to do. Do we Do we think that's the case? And Saeed, I want to throw that to you. Yeah, I, I think I think the, the the far more important thing to examine moving forward is what the progressives are going to be doing. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. Two things I heard today. Uh, one was um, House Majority Whip uh, James Clyburn from South Carolina said, and and by the way, I mean he was immensely influential in in helping out Biden. Probably probably more responsible for Biden's victory than any other person. Very much so, Kent. I mean, especially because uh, Biden was a little bit sputtering getting into South Carolina. Um, Sanders seemed to be very strong at that point. He came in, and, what, fourth or fifth in New Hampshire, yeah. I want to say? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then after that, I mean, I don't think he really had to look back. The, uh, the fact that Clyburn said uh, what really cost us uh, perhaps more of a margin of victory was uh, mm. the whole defund the police uh, trope. And, and I think that that was indicative then of uh, a very major talking point of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. The other thing that I heard today, um, and it was also corroborated by an interview that she gave, I think, to the New York Times, was uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, who actually said that uh, I wasn't planning on running for re-election. I don't know how true that is. And that uh, she's thinking about maybe quitting politics. I don't know if that is a sense of frustration or if it's a sense of uh, uh, you won't have me to kick around anymore uh, like Richard Nixon. I only won by 50 points. (laughs) I'm out. Screw it. Keep your government. I mean, mean, even George Costanza would crave for leaving on a high note of that sort. Mm. Uh, But the the idea then that uh, it brings up a very interesting conversation about was Biden able to win despite the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And it seemed as though he was hedging his bets on the idea that he could peel off enough uh, disillusioned Republicans uh, that he really didn't have to worry about the progressive wing because there was a lot of consternation that they were going to stay home anyways. Uh, And even if they didn't, they would come in with a series of asks, uh, which they've already started to say, we're going to hold his feet to the fire. 
given their petulance, given their attitude, and given their relatively uh, poor showing in the last two election cycles, 2018 as well as 2020, uh, how much they then decide to hold their uh, breath till they turn blue uh, is is a major question. I mean, but I don't I don't think that the, I don't think that Biden is going to necessarily uh, acquiesce to them, despite what I think a lot of conservative voices are going to uh, exploit for uh, political and um, and uh, contribution gain. I'd be interested in um, and I haven't seen the studies on this yet, and it's just kind of just me thinking about it. But in 2016, I think we had on uh, Kelly Cleaver was talking about how she voted for Jill Stein. Jill Stein, right? Um, because she was she was pro Bernie. Bernie didn't win, and so as a protest vote, everybody knew at that point it was a protest vote. They knew she had no chance. Um, she voted for Jill Stein. Fine, whatever. It's your it's your right to to do that, but know what you're doing. Um, but I don't know that there was necessarily the excitement uh, for. Uh, a uh, Bernie Sanders amongst the black community that there was amongst the white community. But then when you look at this election, the sheer amount of black people that turned out to essentially give Biden the victory. Let's just not even play around about this. Atlanta, Detroit, Philadelphia, black people won this election for, for Joe Biden, period. Full stop. And um, the Navajo in Arizona, 97% turnout for Biden. Okay, so Navajo as well. I mean, obviously I don't think around Native American issues, unfortunately. I should. First peoples. Um, but uh, I, I would be interested in, in that conversation probably at a later time uh, about, uh, about that particular phenomenon. Because black people did not show up in 2016, so to speak, but it wasn't because Bernie had lost and I'm going to cast my, my vote for a Jill Stein, or I'm just going to stay home, take my toys and go home. Jill Stein, not big in the black community. Not huge. Right, the you Jill, know, I do Jill not... who? The girl down the street? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. That's not, that's not nah, who nah, don't, don't, don't hang out with Jill Stein. <laughs> you know, I would have to look at, we would have to look at historical trends, and I don't know, I'm not making counter-argument. We'd have to look at historical trends of turnout, of what black turnout has been, let's say, over the last 30 years. Because... Black people came out in 2016. They didn't come out at Obama-sized levels. And and I think Hillary was counting on the Obama Is coalition. that because Obama didn't ask them to quite like he asked them for Joe? <laughs> well, there's, I think yeah. uh, there's an addendum to, to what you're talking about in looking at certain demographic shifts. I saw one uh, study that said that uh, every non-Christian denomination in America— uh, majority of them voted for Biden, and every single Christian denomination, whether it was Mormon, Protestant, Catholic, or other, uh, the majority, even slightly, when it came to Catholics, fifty forty nine, all voted for Trump. You cannot so, tell me the American, the African Methodist Episcopalian Church voted for. That was pretty lopsided. Yeah. Well, they 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 were lumped in with uh, with the all other. Baptists probably. So okay, no, no, all right. Yeah, I yeah. think Baptist Fine. was right. not. Yeah, Baptist was not a separate category. So, uh, but but I think it's really interesting to see those kinds of statistics as well and how they play out. Okay, absolutely. So, um, Steve, you don't have the next question in front of you, so I'll ask it. Um, Biden Biden is now one, uh, obviously, uh, allegedly. <laughs> uh, 
what policies do we think a, a Biden administration might pursue? And I want to throw that to I want to throw that to Josh. And and give it this caveat. When I talked about your when I was on your show, we talked about the politics of fear, and people like, hey, vote this way because if if Joe Biden wins, we need to fear X thing happening. Right? Happens on both sides. But now we do have the winner. You are still a conservative. You're trying to get conser- you know, to, to win back conservatives, uh, especially millennials. Um, concerns for you with a Biden presidency policy-wise. And if you can add on to that a little bit of what would you like to see him do from a conservative point of view? Yeah. Well, at a personal level, I think the— That's enough of that nonsense. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on. Said. <laughs> No, go on. Sorry. I, I had I had to. I'm sorry. That's too funny. Go on. Actually, it's it's awesome you did that because what I was going to say was it's going to be interesting to see over the next four years how all of the friends I've garnered from the left are suddenly going to realize, oh, I guess we weren't seeing quite as eye to eye as I thought we were. Uh, th- You've got your own lot. little Lincoln projects well, going the, on. The funny thing is I already I do feel that way. Like there's things I know that you believe. And I said this on your show. Look, these two parties have not really moved that far from where they were. Like we look at Trump and he's done. He hasn't gone that far policy-wise from what Bush was, what, you know, Herbert Walker Bush was, what Reagan was, policy-wise, even though they didn't have a platform this year, the platform's been the same, right? So Mm -hmm. I know that ideologically, you and I do not see eye to eye if we get granular on things. So what is it that you think you would lose people on the left who they think they're close to you on just because you don't support Trump? Have they not gotten into policy conversations with you? I, I, I hate to go down I, a rabbit hole there, but... I wouldn't even say it's policy. I think it's more temperamental. I think okay. um, individuals such as myself who have been uh, critical, shall we say, of the president have garnered a lot of um, attaboys uh, hmm. from quadrants that ordinarily we wouldn't necessarily see. I, I don't mean that people have been hostile. I, I don't mean that at right, all. I right. just, and it, it, it transcends policy, and it's more about oh, you see this guy as a threat to the U.S. also. And then that, that forms kind of a kinship that, in absence of that, I think sometimes the differences we have may be more pronounced. But the enemy uh, of my of enemy, my enemy yeah. is my friend. Yes. The problem is, people who think the enemy of my enemy is my friend never stop to think, hey, the enemy of, the enemy of my enemy might also be my enemy. No one ever stops to say that. That's well, we will now, Josh. Yeah, hey, Josh, get the hell off my line. <laughs> Josh, Josh, let me ask you this. Are you, uh, when you look at, and yes, I realize the election was called for Biden yesterday. It runs counter to everything that I, that I want to do. Um, but let's look at 2024. Um, All right, we're going to cut his mic. Let's start, yeah. Um, <laughs> Don Jr. Are there, are there any Republicans, because the, the, the list of people who have been talked about as possibly jockeying for 2024 is fairly well known. Mm-hmm. Are there any in that list that you look at and say, nope, not voting for them either? Hey, before you answer that, come on, man. we've asked this we guy four like- questions <laughs> without a- letting him ask answer <laughs> one question so far. Answer for all Republicans now. <laughs> we've asked him four questions now. <laughs> Saeed? Okay. No, just- all right. Shh. Go ahead. Well, let me let me go back. Yeah, go back, Before go back. I respond to that, let me go back to the prior, which is yeah. the first thing that springs to my mind as far as what I would like to see in a Biden presidency, and maybe this kind of blends into what I was saying earlier, isn't policy, it's temperament. Uh, I think it would be wonderful if we either never or rarely hear the president tweet for the next four years. If Biden can't succeed in being this yeah. guy that cools down the temperature, 
if he can succeed in being this guy that's president for all of America, which, quite frankly, I don't think he will. Mm. I, I think our country is way too divisive. I don't think he's going to succeed at that. I'm not entirely certain how far he carries that out in his own mind. I mean, quite frankly, when Barack Obama was elected, he had very similar rhetoric. And, and it didn't, whether you blame Obama, whether you blame the right, that didn't last very long. But if we could have a president that turns down the temperature, regardless of what policies get passed, I think that would be immensely valuable if we actually could see the nation begin to unify in some sense. Quite frankly, we're dealing with a horrible economic crisis, a once in a century pandemic, and racial tensions our country hasn't experienced since the late 60s. We need to be able to find some sort of common ground and unity. Even if you're white, just so we're clear on that, black people have continued to experience. <laughs> well, no, and, and 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 sorry, but I mean that's I guess that's a that's a huge disembodied. No, Dave. that's a huge follow up to that question. No, he can see me. Um, is with seventy four odd million people voting for Trump and still saying, "Yep, that's my guy." Is cooling the temperature down feasible feasible yes it's going to be difficult and 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 this and this may seem like an impossibility i i'm i'm saying this if i look just at a personal lens if i just right. look at oh yeah party, for sure there's i i am part of a very tiny minority and within this minority there are definitely those who want to just blow the whole thing up anyone that uh, any senator which would be all of them other than mitt romney uh, who didn't vote to uh, remove the president from office, any Republican that didn't vote to impeach him, uh, they should have no standing whatsoever. Well, that's obviously ridiculous. Republicans are never going to win anything if we can't build some bridges there. But where do you draw that line? Uh, where, you know, Matt Gates, I would even say Senator Lindsey Graham, I don't think they're individuals I could ever trust again. Uh, not that I ever trusted Matt Gates. But, but how far down that road do you go? And I think there's, in order for healing to be facilitated, there's going to have to be an immense amount of very uncomfortable forgiveness. Um, from lots of sides and, and we might not be to the point that one side even wants maybe i shouldn't say forgiveness but reconciliation and i think that's a good place to stop because we're definitely going to pick that back up in the second half of the show let's take 10 minutes and we'll be back well we are back from break we want to um, josh has some interesting things at the end that i want to pick back up on but uh we also want to still throw back to uh to saeed what do you see in a in a biden uh, and Biden administration. No, I think one of the beauties and perhaps one of the uh, the banes of the American political system is that on the one hand you have uh, all of this change with an incoming administration, but you also have other levels of continuity. And if in fact the Senate stays with, uh, with the Republican Party, uh, more importantly it stays with Mitch McConnell. And so the prospect and the promise of a kind of amity that Biden could bring, I think is going to be checked by McConnell in the same way that he had that kind of uh, a havoc uh, desire to uh, wreck uh, uh, Obama. Uh, I'd hope it's different this time. Uh, I'd hope that he uh, recognizes that there are bigger issues going on in the country that need attention and that the culture of division really needs to come to an end. Uh, I'm not really that confident about that, and I think that things are really going to get gummed up, despite the fact that we have a $25 trillion uh, deficit, uh, and despite all the things that Josh correctly said. Uh, and that's just on the domestic level. I mean, Biden is going to be able to probably restore many of the uh, 
uh, alliances and agreements and uh, relationships that we have internationally. Some of them, I'm not sure it really matters. It might be too little too late because of the rise of China. And I don't think that China can really be contained in these last four years. I, I think we made the point on a, on a prior show. The United States spent $6 trillion on uh, its wars uh, in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq, uh, really over the last 20 years or so. China spent $1.5 trillion to rebuild the Silk Road. Uh, I mean, the, the, the numbers here are just, uh, I mean, they're, they're, they I defy, hate that this is a podcast, but none of y'all can see my shirt right now. It's silky smooth. Thank you, Silk What's Road. It? What's it say? Nothing. Not Never what he mind. meant. Not what he meant. Never Go mind. ahead, Said. Oh, okay. Terrible joke. Detroit, Terrible timing. Detroit versus China versus everybody, but okay. <laughs> um, so, so I, 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 I don't know. I, I, I think it's, it's, it's really too early to tell how out of the gate uh, the response to Biden is going to be. I think we know enough about Biden as an individual. We know um, enough about both his character and his his policy interests. Uh, we also know that I think in many ways he realizes that he's a placeholder, uh, maybe toward a new transition within the Democratic Party. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen on the other side. If, if I were if I were the Republican Party, and if they really were serious, I would uh, go ahead and get rid of McConnell as Senate Majority Leader and make either Thune or, um, here's one, I mean, even Scott out of South Carolina, okay. the new Senate you know, Majority Leader, before you for go two on, reasons. I think it would show a lot of good faith. And the second thing is, given the trends of more people of color uh, voting for Trump uh, this time, it would probably really uh, start to pick off a lot of people who are genuinely concerned about the progressive tug of war within the Democratic Party among Hispanics, blacks, Muslims, and many other groups. Josh, I mean, you're totally on the record about Donald Trump in the last couple of years. Uh, where is, I mean, from your point of view, uh, can you speak to what the conservative point uh, point of view on Mitch McConnell is? Uh, are you supportive of Senator McConnell? Uh, do you think he's kind of, his moment in time has passed and new leadership is on the horizon? Uh, what are your thoughts? And what's up with his hands? Besides the hands. Okay. <laughs> McConnell's a complicated figure. I mean, it, I can speak both for myself or maybe conservatism in general. I mean, I, I think it would be hard to argue he's been one of the most productive Senate majority leaders we've seen mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, a, in a long while. And and I know this is a, this is certainly an issue that sticks in people's draw, but the number one thing about McConnell is his ability to get, um, I, I don't want to say conservative, but say right-of-center judges on courts, uh, using, of course, you know the, the president. But I think that was largely Trump and McConnell working together. I celebrate a lot of those what I would consider victories for the right. I do question how it was done, and I do think we are seeing we're living in the middle or maybe just the beginning of what is going to be a bruising back and forth where it seems like each side ups the ante just a little bit when it comes to court appointments. I I don't think this is over. I do think I personally feel like it was a mistake that McConnell gummed up the uh, nomination of Merrick Garland for as long as he did, um, if for no other reason than the sheer amount of time between Obama appointing Garland and B- Obama leaving office. Let me, before you finish that, uh, and, and I want to get to the next thing, but Facebook has Facebook memories, uh, and they pop up and like four, eight years ago. I'm like, good God, I said some things I, I did not agree with now. So let, let's go back six years. 
Merrick Garland is on the docket. It's, it's uh, four. Well, it was it was five and a half at this point. Now we're at four years. He held it up for however long? A year. Okay, so a year. Five yeah, years. Okay, five yeah. years. So let's go back five years. Merrick Garland is being held up. <clears throat> if you commented on this five years ago, I don't know where you were uh, politically at that point, but let's say five years ago and your Facebook memories popped up. Did you feel that way five years ago, like this is not what should be being done? Or are you looking back with the um, – with hindsight bias and saying, well, you know, I, now I don't think he should have done that. Did you feel that same way then? It's a good question, and it's, and it's easy. I, I, I want to say yes. Now, I, I, I probably didn't feel as strongly as I do now about that. Uh, I remember asking a friend at one point, like, can they do that? I've never heard of someone halting a nomination for a solid year for a Supreme Court justice. And, and I don't know enough about the history of Supreme Court justices. Maybe it's relatively common in our history. It just seemed very deliberately uh, done to try to prevent Merrick Garland from taking the seat, which which I, I'm not necessarily a huge fan or ne- necessarily a big critic of Merrick Garland. I think he was rightly seen as sort of the compromise nominee. But I th- my concern is it's part of a broader story, going back to Judge Bork, going back to Clarence it goes, Thomas. Yeah, I think it goes it, back it, to Bork. Yeah, it, it goes back to Bork, and you can see this on the left and the right. And it's kind of ironic, you know, Biden being president and some of his role, even in in Bork and Thomas. Um, and where whether you blame the Republicans or Democrats, sometimes it just depends on where you choose to start the story. But the point is, we are in this dangerous cycle where we keep upping the ante. I'm grateful that we ended up with a Supreme Court Justice uh, uh, Gorsuch, who I personally feel is a lot closer aligned to my values and my policies than uh, Merrick Garland perhaps would have been. But I'm concerned that what this means for the rest of our life is it could lead to bad things down the road. Okay. Why so, is it? Well, that, uh, why uh, is it that it went back? That you say it goes back to Bork, but it seems to have taken a complete sabbatical during the Clinton administration because Ruth Bader Ginsburg was confirmed. What was it, ninety-seven to three? That's that's not necessarily true. I mean, the the problem I would, I, if I recall, under Clinton was before the nom- before the uh, the the uh, nomination pro- or the confirmation process. He was putting up some lousy judges. Uh, who had a lot of issues, and so they were in many ways preempted. I mean, Zoe Baird, Lonnie Guineer. Well, they uh, they so, were nominees for attorney general, though, not for. Oh, not I'm for sorry. I'm judge. sorry. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I think the climate had already begun as far as the battlegrounds being at the judiciary committee level. Okay. Uh, I mean, I think we forget that in 1986, when Scalia was nominated, he sailed through on his confirmation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bork really seems to be that uh, that line in the sand where everything changed, and I think you're absolutely right, uh, Josh, that uh, Biden played a very very big role, as did Kennedy, as did Metzenbaum, uh, in uh, tainting the whole process, and I think that Republicans were right to feel uh, slighted or to feel smited by by that process, and again, it's just a matter of saying, well, when do you just say, okay, enough is enough. And, and move on uh, from the, the omerta or the vendettas uh, occurring because, because it seems as though it's probably reached its, its, its pinnacle with Amy Coney Barrett. I mean, my God, what happened to the integrity? I mean, you think of names like Brandeis, Frankfurter, Holmes, Barrett. 
right. It's so, a fine so, name. So let's, She's fine. The name is okay. Is. So let's uh, let's uh, hard left turn here. We're on the back half of the show. Uh, there were things that uh, that you had said, uh, Josh, to to kind of end the first half in terms of like uh, forgiveness and, and whatnot that I do plan to to talk about later on. Um, but I said on the on the front half, hey, you know, in the back half we're going to be uh, introducing a, a third guest. Uh, my wife, Jennifer Moore, is here. Jennifer, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then I want to dive into the to the next question. Well, you didn't tell me you were going to put me on the spot about telling about me. Um, you have my bio, but I don't remember what's on it. Um, so, hi, I'm Jennifer. I mean, you, hi, Jennifer. you gotta tell me that. All right. Sorry, <laughs> this is things I ter- I'm terrible at that. If you listen to our show, you know my wife. All right, so she's been on. Um, <laughs> You've got my bio. Learning, you can look it learning up. Learning lots of things, and it'll be on it'll be on the website. <laughs> um, but I did want to talk about the historic nature of uh, Kamala Harris being elected the first female vice president, the first uh, biracial vice president, the first black vice president, the first uh, Indian American vice president. All of these things are of a historic nature, and you and I constantly have conversations back and forth. Uh, you're constantly putting in front of me resources about uh, you know feminism and moving women forward in our country. Mm-hmm. So as a uh, as a woman, right? Um, how do how do you feel about the even even if you were not a fan of Kamala Harris? Let's just put it that way, right? Just as as a woman, like you're seeing a woman elevated to this high office. Um, how do you feel seeing a woman break? break the glass ceiling, not the way that Hillary expected to break the glass ceiling, mm-hmm. right? Um, but we now have the first ever in American history. Mm-hmm. What, what are your thoughts? Um, I feel elated and very proud to be a part of history to see that um, in my lifetime. I know that there are a lot of women who, you know, hoped for something like that and that didn't get to see that realized in their life. Um, women have only been allowed to vote for 100 years. Um, it was 1919 technically, but um, as far as elections go, they always come on an even year. So um, we have been, this is the 100th anniversary essentially as far as elections go, as far as I understand it. So it's also hugely significant of what so many women have fought for and continue to fight for. Um, as a woman, I am so proud to see a woman finally still not able to get to the top office, <laughs> but um, a next to that um, office is amazing and phenomenal. We have broken other, you know, um, glass ceilings, so to speak, in the Senate and Congress and other things, um, but never gotten that close to um you know, the presidency. So I think that is huge. Um, and yet still you voted for Trump and Pence. No, I did not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but let me just say, like, the sad part of it is, though, is we also were only allowed to be second. And what I mean by that is, you know, I, I, I don't believe that had we run a woman in the Democratic presidency, um, for the Democratic ticket or whatever ticket. I don't care which you side. Mean like we did four years ago. Well, like we did four years ago. I don't believe that we would have won. I think people are okay with a woman supporting a man, but still not okay with a woman leading. 
And I think that that is showcased. Like, we're okay with her being vice president. But as, you know, there's still enough, I would say, sexism and misogyny to not want her to be president. I would venture to say, though, that I think you're right. Uh, If if we had run a woman, uh, we would have lost. But I also think if we'd run any other man, we probably would have lost. Let let me ask you, uh, who did you vote for in the primary? The primary? Mm -hmm. Um, I I actually voted for um, Sanders. And I voted for Elizabeth Warren. So I voted Have for a woman there. Good job. You did not. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I honestly just looked at some of the platforms, um, mm-hmm. and that's what I voted uh, based on. Um, I also wanted somebody to beat Trump, and Would I you... thought it was either Sanders had the biggest following, or or um, Biden. It was I was torn between the two, um, and that I literally could have gone either way. To be so, honest. So let me let me go this way. Let me throw it to, to you, Josh. Because I didn't think they would vote for a woman. In in 2008, John McCain? John yep. McCain and Sarah Palin, right? Mm-hmm. So 2008, the Republicans tried this. Yep. Mm-hmm. They ran John McCain. John McCain didn't win, but he had Sarah Palin as, as his running mate. Um, and it was great for... Saturday Night Live. Okay. It was fantastic right. yeah, for Saturday Night Live. I was literally thinking that. So it was now. great. Yeah, it was definitely great. Um, but... Either way, uh, they ran uh, a woman as, uh, as as a vice presidential candidate. So it's almost like they maybe felt the same way. Like, hey, not you're not going to get to the highest office, but maybe we we bring you along. This is new. Maybe the culture is here where where it needs to be. What were your thoughts uh, as a Republican? I don't know how Republican you were at that point, but let's say that you were. What were your thoughts in 2008 for John McCain running mm-hmm. with? Uh, a female running mate. It's difficult for me to separate the fact that Sarah Palin was a woman with Sarah Palin, the candidate itself. Uh, she was an interesting candidate, to be sure. And I do remember just a surge of uh, exuberance and pride. When, when she, I knew almost nothing about Sarah Palin. I knew she was governor of Alaska, and that was about it when it was announced. When she was announced and when she gave her I guess you would call it acceptance speech with John McCain by her side. I think there was a, a sense of exuberance. And if I remember correctly, McCain uh, shot up in the polls at that time. It seemed mm-hmm. like the country loved her. Mm-hmm. She was very energetic. Uh, she seemed at the time articulate. Evangelical. Um, she, yeah, yes, very evangelical. She and, and I mean, quite frankly, from a personal level, it seemed like she checked a lot of the boxes. This felt like someone I knew, you know, it felt like someone I would be comfortable being around. Um, she was rather disappointing as the campaign wore on now. And, and so it's, it's a little difficult for me to answer that question because it's hard for me to separate McC- uh, Palin, the person from Palin, the candidate. It was obvious. I, I think uh, I had heard it said, and it's probably true that John McCain, it, it, it looked fairly off, um, evident that he was going to have a hard time winning that race. And that Sarah Palin represented someone who was a high risk, high reward individual. She was, and I don't, I'm, I, I'm assuming you, you've heard this, uh, McCain did not want to go with her. He very much wanted to pick his good friend Joe Lieberman, who was who was a very centrist uh, Democrat and had run with Al Gore eight years earlier. And Steve Schmidt, his campaign manager, talked him out of it and said that Sarah Palin. Now Steve Schmidt and uh, his deputy Nicole Wallace. Oddly enough, Steve Schmidt is now uh, in helping run Project Lincoln, and Nicole Wallace is a anchor on MSNBC. So. I don't know if, if taking their advice was the right thing for the Republican Party, but uh, 
it, you I know, think it, it would have been. I, I don't know if John McCain had picked Ronald Reagan if he was going to win in 2008 <laughs> against Barack Obama. Right, you got to cart him around, it, it, and it's, the... it's almost like they they. And, and this is and this is anecdotal, obviously, but um, I I felt from the beginning that there was no, especially uh, once uh, Barack Obama gave his speech about religion in America, being black and, and, and religious in America around, uh, he had to speak because uh, Jeremiah Wright had become a major issue. He gave the speech and said, that man's about to become the president of the United States. Absolutely. Um, but <clears throat> uh, I, I felt still in 2008 when Obama won, there was there's still the liability today, and I, I hate that it's a liability. Uh, it's just an American historical thing. But because of the the history of slavery in America and race relations in America, uh, a lot of times conservatives will push back and say, "Hey, you're voting for someone based on the historic nature of the thing. Because he's black, he'll be the first black president. What about policy? This is the only time that I find." Uh, Republicans tend to really care about policy in conversations I tend to have with them, other than with people like you, Josh. Um, sorry to, to make you stand in for all of them. But when it comes That's why I'm here. To, I know, it is. <laughs> uh, that's why I was on your show. Uh, but uh, when it comes to someone like a, a Kamala Harris, she is the first X thing. Mm-hmm. So, Jen, I want to throw it back to you. Do you support a, a Kamala Harris because of the historic nature of the thing or because you've looked at her policies and, and you support what she brings to, to the table policy wise. And and she's a lot of people expect her to be the next president. That's Mm -hmm. the whole deal. You saw her come out and give her speech. Like, Joe came in like, Hey, yeah, I'm going to be the president. Yeah. She she was phenomenal. Um, I honestly, I, I, I don't think it has to be either or both and, um, I mean, I think that she is a phenomenal candidate. Um, she can hold her ground. I mean, all of us have heard that I'm speaking, hmm. <laughs> right? Like she can hold her ground. Um, so she has a, she is the, a good blend of what I, I think women are both expected to be and required to be in leadership where she is polished enough, um, but also doesn't take, you know, um, shit, so to speak. Like she's can stand her ground without, and she does it in a way that I don't think comes off, um, brash. I'm sure people will still call her the quintessential terms that they tend to call, um, women with, leadership skills <laughs> that they don't call men. Um, right, we're not having this conversation about yeah. the guys at all. Like, what do you right. think about a guy being... Yeah, nobody right. says nobody says that about men. How's her men. tone is what, what right. the question so is. Right, so she has a really good, I think, balance on that, which women shouldn't be required to have that, but in the truth of the matter is um, people will expect it from her differently than they expect it from other people. Um, so I think that'll be good for her as far as um, diplomacy goes. Right. Mm-hmm. And leadership goes. So I think that that will help broaden and open up people to her that wouldn't be open. So to speak to like a Hillary type of personality. Um, that being said, I, I I have looked at the policies. Now, I do know as the vice president, she is standing more on Biden's policies. But um, if I was basing it on policies and ticket, uh, yes, I stand by their policies on their ticket 
way more than I did on the Republican side. But I also have been disgusted. I always was Republican prior, actually. Um, but I have been recently disgusted by the Trump endorsement and the puppet um, mentality that I've seen of the party towards him. And so I could not stand behind any of that. Okay. So um, I want to throw this next one to Saeed as the other the other brown person in this conversation. Um, Wait, and who's, it, who's, who's the one other than me? Me. <laughs> oh, right. Right, right. So, uh, I mean, I mean, physically brown, right? But, you know, I know you're... I don't see color. I get it. Yeah, true story. <laughs> Ken no, doesn't right. see Thanks, color. Tim Wise. <laughs> no, 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 no. Tim Wise is not that person. I love Tim Wise. But either way... Um, Saeed, I'd be interesting. Uh, I'd be interested in your perspective on on the race side of things, um, because we have now Joe Biden, who was the running mate for the first black president, also biracial, but he was necessary in a number of in, in a number of ways uh, for Barack Obama to get across the the finish line. Uh, we can't say, oh, Barack didn't need him; he was going to get across the finish line regardless. Um, he was still helpful in certain parts of the country. Now we have Joe Biden in uh, into the presidency, forty sixth president of the United States, but Kamala Harris is being the one who who's being more celebrated, right? Because it's a first again. But again, if she becomes president in four years, right, or eight years, whenever it happens, uh, or if it two. happens, or whenever, yeah, who knows? oh god, that's dark. Um, <laughs> She still needed the cosign or the help of a white person to get her to where mm-hmm. people are hoping she gets to, right? Uh, what are your What are your thoughts in terms of the necessity for black and brown people to have white people on their side to get them to possibly the ho- the highest uh, office in the land or any any space? I think it's a matter of systemic pragmatism. I mean, knowing that uh, not only right now, still majority-wise, but also when it comes to the power structure, uh, who dominates or what what demographic mm-hmm. dominates. So I don't I don't see that as being something that people of color would necessarily hold in contempt. Uh, I, I see that as as a reality that 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 people have. I don't think Tom Cruise necessarily complained that. Uh, people like Gene Hackman helped carry the movie, or uh, Paul Newman did when it came to either the firmer color of money. Uh, they definitely served as conduits uh, because they recognized that. Well, I mean, he was still, I don't think, as as uh, as good an actor as as he perhaps evolved to be later. But there's, there, there's no for for those examples. There's no problematic history of slavery in America. Okay, but there's. I I I, I understand that, but I mean, look. Um, Margaret Thatcher, who was uh, arguably at at one time the most powerful world leader uh, in the 1980s, uh, presided over a country where she, despite the fact going in there and opening up a can of whoop-ass on the Argentinians with uh, the Falklands crisis, could not sign uh, and uh, submit her tax return in uh, Great Britain without her husband's signature. Hmm. I mean, so there's there's certain legal uh, strictures this one I don't think is a legal stricture, and I think people recognize that. At the same time, and I saw this um, this graphic of emojis where it had like 40-something white uh, a little Yeah, men, I think we all saw uh, that one today, yeah. Yeah, and, yep. then, and then it had, uh, had someone representing Kamala. 
And then they had one of uh, every president being white and then a black president, then a clown, and now back to a white president. So people are having fun with emojis. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know anyone who deludes themselves of that factor. And at the same time, I don't think anyone thinks that it diminishes their achievements uh, from doing so. At the same time, I think that people also are realistic enough to recognize that part of what makes Kamala uh, the vice presidential elect are those very identity markers. She was chosen because that definitely helped. I, 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 I don't think she sleeps poorly at night uh, w- with all those facts in mind. Okay. Jen? But, I mean, it's not even just a person of color thing. It's a, a you know, women and men. I mean, like he brought up, <laughs> she had to have her husband sign off years ago. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that a woman couldn't even have a bank account or own property. Right. I mean, I, years ago, I wouldn't have been able to get a credit card without your approval. I, I So... It's those were the days. Shut up. <laughs> um, but I mean, we're still even in that it's the same. It's the same idea that women have endured um, of we have had to have allies. I mean, when women started to march and demand a vote, they did all of that with no real voice. And what I mean by that is they had no legal voice. They had no precedent, no representation. Um, of their own, right? And the only way, I mean, yes, we we made noise, we got noticed, we marched, we did things, but without the men that were allies standing with us, we would have had no movement, we would have had no power. So, I mean, it's the same. It's the path that every woman has had to, whether they realize it or not, forge through and follow. I mean, even the vice presidency comes along with the approval of a man being an ally and electing her and putting her on her, his ticket without that approval. I I don't, again, like I said earlier, I don't think she would have been on a ticket on her own. I don't think we would be here right now. So Josh, I don't don't think the conversation, hold on on one second. I don't think Josh is saying, Hey, uh, to Biden is saying to Kamala, Hey, you, uh, you owe me one, and I don't think Kamala is telling Joe, you no. owe me one. Yeah. No. So let me, let me throw this out to, to Josh then, because generally the side, the, the argument that I hear from from the, the right side of the aisle tends to be you shouldn't be voting for anyone based on this criteria at all. It should not be part of your equation, whether they are black, whether they are female, whether they are X thing other than qualified. So given that Trump is now out, we're going to get back to maybe business as usual in terms of Republican uh, output and outlook. Uh, What are your thoughts on Kamala Harris being praised for being the first X things we I've already listed them all off uh, as a as a conservative person. Do you think those do you think as a conservative those things matter? Do you pull that party line or do you, or do you think this is a great thing? I, I strike a balance. I think it does matter. I think it was it, it was amazing in two thousand and eight that this country that once enslaved black people actually elected a black pe- president. I mean that is something to be celebrated. I, I, I think it I think this is to be celebrated, but I also think that we can overemphasize that point. You know, t- 10 years ago, the state of Oklahoma elected its first female governor. Um, most Oklahomans at this point who voted for her 
I would probably agree she was not necessarily that good of a governor. Um, and so I, I think it's something that we can be caught up at times a little bit too much in the demographic shifts and what this represents and lose sight of the fact that we are talking about arguably the second most powerful office in the most powerful nation on earth and that that carries with it some additional considerations and responsibilities beyond what it represents from a historical perspective. Well, I mean, we could argue the same thing, that the hate, the, the lack of support of women in power got, I would say, a president who was unqualified and didn't necessarily do a good job in office. Necessarily. I mean, depending on where you stand on things. Allegedly. <laughs> I, I mean... <laughs> Historically, he was, I would say, at least not the best president, right? So, just a thought. Okay. Um, so let's uh, let's let's do this. I want to kind of move things uh, forward. Um, what challenges do you all think uh, await the president in twenty twenty one? I want to start off uh, talking about addressing uh, the coronavirus, uh, pri- primarily because Donald Trump said, hey, guess when people will stop talking about the coronavirus? November 4th? November 4th, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> it's now November what? 7th? 7th. We're still talking about it, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do remember... His defense, we probably didn't know that the election was going to drag on for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly story. right. Uh, true story. Um, but, you know, after the midterm elections, he was a person who was bringing it all up, but this caravan that was coming from from South America was like a big deal, right? And then after the midterm elections... Uh, happened, you didn't hear anything about that anymore. It's mysteriously gone. Uh, so, like the dead clock. Yeah. So so to that degree, I'm like, things do disappear after the election happens because both sides like to use whatever it is that they're going to get their, their mm-hmm. side kind of riled up. Um, but let's talk about the coronavirus. Now that uh, Biden is president-elect, assuming we don't get a vaccine here in the next few weeks, like Trump promised or whatever so you, you thought it would said it happen was before the election uh, i said it'd be before the election but you know these things take time um <laughs> how do you how do you think a uh this gets addressed within the next few months and then if it's still ongoing which i i foresee it being how do you think a biden presidency looks at uh, cor- uh, coronavirus who are you asking both of you you're both guests. Answer simultaneously. <laughs> I, I, I want you I to think, both talk over each other. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, uh, I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll butt in. I, I think some of this is apolitical. I think Americans as a whole, regardless of what you think of coronavirus, I think most of us are just exhausted. And I, I think there's a I, – I don't want to say we'll stop talking about it, but I think this may be talked about less just from the, the fact that we've been dealing with it for so long and, and we're tired of dealing with it. That being said, this is an – this is unique in terms of crises in the United States history, at least in my lifetime. You know, I think back to other things that have happened September 11th, for example, as terrible as that was and how it did impact me in some ways. I had friends involved. Most of my experience with, tele- with 9-11 was looking at, it, uh, looking at it through a TV. This is an incident in which every American in some sense is impacted, that we, you can't go anywhere to truly get away from this. That's not going away. I don't see this virus. I mean, I think I was talking to Saeed when we came back from the break. We're on a third wave. This, the numbers are higher than ever. This is it's terrible, and it doesn't look like we're getting out of this anytime soon. I'm I'm hopeful. A my hope is not necessarily in a Trump or Biden administration. I think eventually we get through this. I think if anything, the federal government can um, hopefully provide us 
information, education, the resources we need to, at a local level, fight this. But I'm, um, <laughs> I, I, I don't have a lot of hope that this is going away anytime soon. Actually, let's let's go back and forth. So, Josh, we'll let that be the answer that stands for the show. Um, let's let's jump to Saeed because Saeed, you were on our foreign uh, foreign policy episode. So, what challenges uh, await the president in twenty twenty one in regards to reestablishing or continuing diplomatic relations with our foreign allies or reasserting our willingness to to work with uh, people who have not historically been allies? Right. Just if I can piggyback on what Josh said, okay. uh, you know, it's interesting you mentioned 9-11 because for you it might have been something that you saw on TV. Uh, for me, it very much parallels COVID because what happened on 9-11 created a continuing trespass in my life with the securitization and the surveillance uh, of, of the community. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting um, comparison there. Uh, on the foreign policy side, uh, Calvin, I would, uh, I, I would say there's two things that, that Biden really needs to do. One is restoration, which I think he's going to start immediately to do uh, in the area of NATO, uh, restore confidence uh, among NATO allies. And the second thing uh, that we're going to see him do is uh, develop uh, less of a trade policy-focused uh, uh, re-engagement with China and one that's more geopolitical and geostrategic. Uh, a way to kind of uh, reduce some tensions that have built up about China's dominance uh, in uh, not just the Pacific Rim, but now in uh, the Indian Ocean as well, reaching all the way over to uh, East Asia, uh, sorry, uh, East Africa. And so that I think is going to be the two major prongs that we're going to see coming out of this. I know a lot of people are going to be talking about whether he's going to uh, resurrect the Iran nuclear deal. He said he would be interested in doing so if it brings a Iran back to full compliance, but I don't think that's where his priority is going to be. All right. So when I want both of you, and, and hope we, we had a little, uh, for those of you listening, you, you didn't hear all this, of course, we had some technical difficulties getting the show started. Are both of you okay to go about like 10, 15 minutes over? Just, yeah. okay, yeah, sweet, excellent. Um, so let's let's talk about then the, and I want both of you to weigh in on this one. Uh, we'll start with Saeed and then go back to, uh, to Josh. Uh, in terms of the economy, what's the challenge there for for a Biden presidency? When it uh, and 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 Jennifer, I'm sorry, you weren't here in the first half. Um, we brought, we like, brought her in to answer the, the women questions. <laughs> no, um, actually, we'll start with Jen. Uh, so, what challenges do you think await the president in 2021 in regards to uh, the economy? Because I know the economy affects your job. The economy affects job, everybody, yeah. um, whether they realize it or not. Right? Um, even if it hasn't affected them yet. At some point, it will if it continues, right? Um, the direct, good or bad. Um, so, one of my major concerns, and I think that Kamala will also bring a unique focus to this, is the amount of women that are disenfranchised and that this has affected economically. Um, so, what I mean by that is we saw like 40% of women drop out of the workforce due to the pandemic due to schooling, due to child care, um, or shall we say lack of child care, <laughs> lack of schooling. Um, they had child care, which is the, very bad. Right. Additionally, um, and on, and, you know, a non-proportion, I, I'm missing the right word. Um, disproportionate? A disproportionate, thank you, um, 
number of women, um, not only in the wage gap issue, but are also um, involved in a lot of service industries that are typically have been affected more by the unemployment and Corona shutdowns and closures um, as well. So we are seeing a huge gap increase in that um, for women. And it is affecting, I would say, the marginalized the most um, in in the lower income, right? So women on general, you know, in general make less, as we know, than men. But as well in those industries, um, they they typically are, you know, they have less cushion, right? They have less support. Um, we have recently, you know, through the administration had less and less support in those those areas of childcare and um, systems to help support those type of, you know, um, needs. And so I'm very concerned about the socioeconomic impact on women in particular, and not just um, women, but also, of course, um, women of color, because though all women make less than men, women of color make even less than white women um, in a, a huge percentage uh, difference. I mean, w- women of color can be as low as 50% of that of men. It's pretty low. And so it's it's really, you know, it's unprecedented. We haven't seen that kind of impact on women and the, the their children, right? Um in more recent, I would say, generations, right? For recent decades, at least. Um, and so I'm, I'm really, really concerned about that. And um, I think we were starting to see that wage gap slowly a little bit over time close, not near enough. But um, I feel like this pandemic has set women way back. And I'm very concerned about what that, where that could lead. So I want to see some policy that can help um, everyone, but also that can help that margin gap and gap close. Okay. Um, Josh, Saeed? Challenges for the... I kind of see the economic issue as a two-front, and it seemed like the elephant in the room is COVID-19. It's, it's hard to know how do we actually get back on our feet as a country without effectively dealing with a virus and that's certainly something we're all trying to work on but that's an elephant we don't want to save say again that's an elephant we don't want to save correct yes okay oh now you're a fan of big game hunting all right go on josh sorry it'll be interesting to see and this is kind of why i was hearkening back earlier who ultimately controls the senate i think is going to have a big impact on what sort of a stimulus or um stop loss or rescue type package comes out of a Biden administration or heck maybe even the waning days of a Trump administration we'll, we'll see them get their act together and pull something together. I work in the audit industry here in the state of Oklahoma. CARES Act over a trillion bucks, 150 billion went to the states and just from that slim you know what 15% of the total uh, the amount of um, um, the, the bureaucratic administrative nightmare that is created just for us the last I heard, uh, the numbers between uh, Nancy Pelosi and the Trump White House, the reason we didn't get a package pass was one of the sticking points was instead of 150, they, they wanted a trillion dollars going just to the states. Um, so it, we need a stimulus, but the fallout from that, you know, let alone having to pay for it, what all that can do from an auditor perspective terrifies me. But in post 
COVID world, you know, before the virus happened, I really think we're on the front end of a, what do they call this, the fourth industrial revolution. And I think eventually, hopefully in our lifetimes, it's going to make our nation, it's going to make the entire world more prosperous. Getting there is going to be a bumpy road. The automation, the technological advancements, uh, the hollowing out of the center of the country, um, the lack of, of uh, jobs that don't require, say, white-collar professions uh, is, is a real problem. And I don't know that we've determined as a nation how to deal with that. And I really attribute a lot of that to why Trump was elected in the first place, the sort of anger and animosity that exists in the center of the country if going left out. You know, I think about myself. I work from home. And in this COVID-19 since it's, it's difficult, you know, without being able to interact with other people, it can have a real drain on your mental health. From 8 to 5, Monday through Friday, that's, that, that's when I feel the most alive. And the idea that so many in our nation could be facing the prospects of not having that sense of meaning from their work, I think is not only going to have a drain on the economy, it can be a real challenge, if not the next four years, uh, over the next eight. Saeed, two-minute response. Yeah, I agree with Josh. I think that it's impossible to really talk about the economy without talking about COVID with it. Uh, and remember, there's really two areas of the economy that need fixing. One is inevitably uh, we, we're going to need to slow down or lock down if we're really going to beat this absent um, or notwithstanding a vaccine being produced and distributed. Uh, Fauci said that that may happen by the end of uh, next year. Uh, he seems to be guardedly optimistic about that. Uh, going through this for another year, as, as Jennifer said very aptly, I mean, the toll that it's taking in both uh, emotional, psychological, as well as in economic terms uh, for women being out of the household uh, or out of the ha um, at home, out of the workforce, uh, impact on, on household income is, is tremendous. Uh, at the same time, there is that specter of an ever-growing uh, budget deficit. And it'll be interesting to see that in calls for um, a new stimulus uh, to uh, help uh, those most in need, if people are going to then uh, hypocritically raise the issue of the deficit as being uh, the reason why not to do so. Oh, we're suddenly deficit hawks again. Yeah, all okay. of a sudden. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. So I, I think that that... Some that, of us never change. Yes. Sure. Uh, and, and, and would that we had principal people like that uh, still there instead of uh, what unfortunately we do have. So I think that in the short term, uh, there's going to be a bit of a bumpy uh, ride. In the long term, actually, I'm not as, uh, I'm not as sanguine as, as Josh is about America uh, being the beacon leading uh, the world when it comes to uh, the economy. Uh, I actually see that uh, the United States is going to... Uh, have to take orders and instructions a little bit more when it comes to issues of the economy and how to drive it by other forces. And I'm not even talking about just China. Uh, when you take a look at who controls resources mm -hmm. and resources which would be pivotal to any economy, uh, those are no longer in the hands of the United States. Mm -hmm. Do you think they missed an opportunity not being part of the Trans-Pacific? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, I think TPP had, had two two goals. One is that it could have gone ahead and uh, helped when it came to maintaining that kind of economic leverage, and the second it was curbing China. And what people simply don't understand is that it, the Iran nuclear deal was not just about Iran. It was to maintain or at least court influence in Iran and the Middle East for the United States and to keep those countries away from China. That is now gone. Uh, $400 billion over 25 years that China's investing in Iran. Uh, we can't match that. 
we, we don't have the political will and we don't really have the economic uh, ability to do so. So I, I want to I get back to something that Josh had said at the end of uh, the first half of the show in terms of, hey, you know, we did kind of get to some sort of forgiveness, some sort of reconciliation. And, and as I said, look, it was black people <laughs> in Detroit, Atlanta, Philadelphia, and so on and so forth that gave Biden the edge that he needed to, to flip some states and, and become president-elect, the, the 46th president of the United States, right? That is a quantifiable reality at this point. Now, there was an article that came out in the Miami Herald uh, by Leonard Pitts Jr., uh, and the, it's titled, Blacks are supposed to reconcile with Trump supporters. Nah, not this time. You first. And, and Josh, I know that you're a never-Trumper. You're a Republican. You did not support Trump. So not talking about you in, in this case. But when we're talking about that reconciliation that you were bringing up on, on the first half of the show, um, I, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this here real quick. It's kind of a, a long quote. I know we don't have a lot of time, but let me read it because it's been sticking with me all day. It says, quote, it happened at the founding. Uh, sorry, please understand. I view this moment through the prism of an African-American man who was a student of history and one thing that PRISM has impressed on me is how often this country has sold out black people in the name of some supposedly greater good. It happened at the founding when a condemnation of slavery was removed from the Declaration of Independence to appease the southern colonies. It happened in 1877 when Rutherford B. Hayes won the presidency in a disputed election after striking a backroom deal to withdraw from the South federal troops who had been protecting black rights and lives. It happened in the early 20th century when the Senate refused to pass anti-lynching legislation for fear of angering the South. It happened in 1961 when Attorney General Robert Kennedy agreed to the illegal arrest of the Freedom Riders as Mississippi's price for protecting them from white supremacist mobs. It happened in 1964, when President Lyndon Johnson blocked a racially mixed delegation from being seated at the Democratic Convention because that would offend the South, unquote. So he, he goes on to say, look, now you're expecting me, the great-grandson of slaves, to reconcile with that, to be okay to, to move forward with forgiveness. And for the last four years, now we're just moving forward into 2020, um, you know, 2016, 2020, you have a president who has, you know, unabashedly said there's been, you know, good people on both sides when one side was white supremacist. He has unabashedly supported police when black people are saying the police are brutalizing and killing black and brown bodies in the United States of America. So when we're talking about forgiveness... To, to move forward, to kind of come together, can can you genuinely expect black people to be the first people to extend the olive branch, so to speak? Because I'll just tell you right now, Josh, um, do not expect that from me. Don't. And you haven't asked that from me. I'm just kind of nebulously talking about the forgiveness you're talking about. Don't expect it from me. Don't expect it from a lot of black people. We're going to be petty LaBelle for at least the first few weeks of this. <laughs> but my thought is it's not my job, the person who has been defended and hurt and marginalized, to reach out and say, hey, can't we all just get along? What are your thoughts on that? It is, it's, it's unfortunate, but I don't expect it from Trump supporters either. I don't see reconciliation and healing taking place anytime soon and and it's interesting you brought it up in that way i had not thought of it that way and, and i'm i'm glad you did i was referring to it more in terms of working within the republican party uh and as an example um senator ben sass from nebraska who through the majority of the trump presidency was 
uh, either nominally or very critical of President Trump. And a specific instance voted to um, uh, approve the president's emergency funding of the wall. And this was seen in some quarters as this sort of support of Trump was seen as just unforgivable. That even someone like Ben Sass, who who up until that point had been um, almost more in say Mitt Romney territory, uh, was someone who was going to be thrown out, you know, to the wolves once the establishment took power again. I think it's unfortunate, but I think the reconciliation has to take part within our circles and communities first, and then extend outward. This is a problem in the Republican Party. I think there's a lot of bad blood. Um, it it would be wonderful if this could lead to a, say, national reconciliation. And even if we don't see eye to eye on things, a recognition that the animosity and, and the, um, um, the, the way the president spoke about people of color, of minorities, of different groups was just untoward. Would, was not, not just untoward. Not would, okay. you, would you say, I'm, I'm sorry, we're going to take like more time than I said, but Okay. Would you say that there is a major racism problem within the Republican Party? Not just, hey, the, the group that is undeniable, that, that's part of our base, but I mean just part and parcel to the Republican Party for a lot of black people, obviously not every black person because there's black people within the Republican Party, but for the majority of black voters, the Republican Party is a racist party. It doesn't just say racist things. And Trump going away is not going to change the perspective. Do you think there is a deep-seated, and not saying Democrats don't have issues as well, do you think that the Republican Party has a major racism issue that it needs to openly address? I think I would have a hard time seeing it clearly one way or another. I think racism is endemic to the human species. And absolutely, there are things my party has done that I'm not okay with in terms of its stance on race. Um, I also don't feel as animated at times. My minority friends seem far more animated about that idea than I do. And I don't mean that you're wrong. I mean that I guess I, I from, my pers- from my vantage point, it's hard to see. From my vantage point, I certainly know that, you know, in in, um, Oklahoma, for example, when Barack Obama ran, Oklahoma had the distinction of being the only state in which all 77 counties voted for uh, first John McCain and then Mitt Romney, Obama's opponent. Uh, Southeastern Oklahoma is a little Dixiecrat. I don't think they did so because they were fans of a Mormon. I think they they did so, not everyone, but I think there were certainly some in Southeast Oklahoma who did so because they didn't want a black man as president. That is shameful and it's terrible. How much of that is indicative of the entire Republican Party? I don't know. It's it's I, I truly don't know. It's hard to say. Okay. Just want to uh, clarify too, though, that um, I don't think that racism is indicative of the human race. I think it's again, it's something created, but we live in a white supremacist society. I just want to clarify that. Said. Yeah, I'm still trying to work on whether you're going to do New Attitude or Lady Marmalade when you say you want to be. Uh... Patty Labelle a little bit longer. I, I, <laughs> you mean you mean Petty Labelle? Petty Labelle. I took that from uh, from Dave, who owns uh, oh. who owns Podcast Detroit. He says I'm Petty Labelle. I'm Tom Petty. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm oh, Petty and okay. Pink. A Petty and Pink. I'm, I'm Petty Wap. Petty. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
go on. We, we only have like uh, okay. two, two minutes uh, left. I'm sorry. Uh, we're running out of time here. To, to me, to me I, I think that there's going to be this, this terrible misappropriation of a trope where people are going to ask, where's our Mandela? And people are going to uh, almost demand a Mandela from the black American community. Uh, and I think it's a very cynical approach to go ahead and say, well, this is the kind of person with whom we'll deal with if there is going to be a kind of reconciliation, because I don't think it's their call to make that. Uh, whomever the black American community decides to choose from within its own ranks to be its uh, spokesperson uh, is the one that's going to be at the table. There's going to have to be some level of reconciliation. I don't see how it's going to get past the optics. And I do like the point that was made earlier uh, that this has to happen, as Josh said, from the ground up. Uh, there are far more examples of organic engagement between uh, people of color and, and the white population than what the media likes to report, because it's just not fun, and what uh, political parties, uh, I, I find, resist because it can't be exploited. Okay. Jen, uh, your response, I, and then we have one last question. Okay. I just needed to go out there as not on the racism thing, but as a woman. We also elected a president where we we put Clinton on trial <laughs> because of his actions in office, yet we elected a man who has, who has multiple accusations of sexual assaults and misconduct towards women. Um, and so I think that there's also that that the Republican Party needs to deal with to women. You know, not only that, but Kavanaugh, <laughs> like both of these people, I would say, are sexual offenders that we put in leadership in the highest some of the highest offices of the land. And so as a woman <laughs> um, to know that men can still do those things and not pay the price and not be held accountable and then still succeed and go on to not just anything, but to the promotion level of literally the president and the Supreme Court, for example. Um, I think that needs to be dealt with within the party as well. We have one last question to get back to. Uh, Josh, I just uh, uh, I want to put this out. We we asked it. Uh, it kind of got caught in some crossfire uh, in the first uh, in the first half. I just want to uh, get your sense about the next presidential cycle. Do you see anybody as the front runner? And if I throw a couple names at you, and I will tell you what, I'm going to throw some names at you. Uh, it's a list. It, it's as comprehensive a list as I can put together of people who of Republicans who might run in 2024. And and give me your thoughts. Uh, Don Jr., Ivanka, uh Tom Cotton, Ben Sass, Jim Jordan, Greg Abbott, Tim Scott, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, and Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson. Tucker wow. Carlson. That's a dark horse. Are Ooh. you? A, uh, <laughs> I imagine there are people. I imagine there are people on that list you would vote for, and I imagine there are people on that list you wouldn't. But do you see anybody as being a front runner from that list? I kind of got out of the prediction business after 2016 as far as four years out, who would or wouldn't make it. I mm. think certainly that. And, and uh, Josh Hawley, I don't know if you mentioned him or not. I would certainly add him to the list yep. of someone. Yep, he was on it. Vine, he was on Okay. Yep. Um, I certainly think these are all individuals we're talking about. You know, national conversation is they're presumed to be the front runner. Some of this depends, and this is kind of what we started off the conversation with. Is the Republican Party going to 
uh, maintain a kind of Trumpy nationalist populism, or is it going to try to swing back to an older establishment or or some new direction? And I think that will determine whether or not a Tom Cotton or a Josh Hawley or, God forbid, Donald Trump Jr. Yeah. Uh, or, or maybe someone more in my camp, a Ben Sass, uh, whether or not they would um, be the front runner for the party. Who's your favorite right now? If you had to pick. If I had to pick, it would be nobody's talking about him. Mitch Daniels, former governor of Indiana. Okay. That's he's what I'm talking about. Too old Dark by horse. Yeah. By the time twenty twenty. Rising star. Is he currently the uh, currently the president of Purdue? Correct. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank uh, all of our guests, uh, Professor Saeed Khan, Josh Lewis, obviously my wife, Jennifer Moore, for being here uh, to give your perspectives on, on this election. Um, who knows? In two weeks, we may be talking about how uh, Trump somehow won all of his uh, all of his lawsuits and is now the president. Fifty of the states, again. all <laughs> fifty <laughs> states, and Minnesota. Uh, I, don't, I don't see that coming. Uh, My but, last episode. <laughs> uh, but I just, yeah, check it out. I just wanted to, to thank uh, all of our guests for being here, and for those of you listening, thanks so much for listening to Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. Make sure you check out our website, leadingquestionsnow.com, where you can find all of our episodes from this season, the last six seasons, bios, a calendar of upcoming topics, and even suggest topics for us to talk about. If you're interested in bringing our program out to your college, university, organization, email us at hello at leadingquestionsnow.com and we'll get back to you. Don't forget, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and of course, the Podcast Detroit app. Please leave us a review. That's very important. And we will see you next week.